Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Ryan Morgan. He's the owner, head baker, founder of 16 Bricks, which is a bakery out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, 16 Bricks mainly focuses on wholesaling. We haven't really had too many wholesalers on the podcast in terms of baking and bread. Really, the only one that we've had so far is Matt Swint of Matia Breads here in Columbus. But you can't talk about the Cincinnati food scene, the Cincinnati restaurant scene, Cincinnati bakeries without landing on 16 bricks like they're the big boys on the block but it's not just them doing more than everybody else in terms of volume or anything like that it is high quality bread it is not just boring white bread that gets mass produced and sent to a bunch of different restaurants that's not what Ryan's doing Uh, he likes to tinker around with different things different recipes always trying to perfect the loaf of bread even though it's an unperfectable thing just because it's depending on the day and the temperature and the humidity and all these different factors that go into baking bread. Uh, It's way more science and chemistry and everything. And it kind of fits with his background. You know, he never wanted to be uh, a chef or a baker or anything like that. It kind of fell into him, fell into his lap. He fell into it kind of thing where, you know, he had a engineering career and his mom wound up, you know, taking over this restaurant and bakery and uh, it wasn't doing too well, and you know he wound up kind of doing some consulting, and and eventually wound up taking it over, and then changed you know the recipe and lost a bunch of clients, and then built it all back up from there, and did everything you know in house from scratch, learning along the way, you know, no formal trainer or anything. So we cover all that stuff, and it's a, just a fascinating episode, and you know, it's somebody that I wanted to have on because it's a really unique story, and we uncovered some stuff in there that I don't think Ryan talks about much too. Uh, This episode's a little different in the structure in that we still go through kind of line by line with the timeline and everything, but there's a lot more metaphors um, in this episode too as well. It's not just, uh, there's a little bit more life context uh, to in this episode. It's a little more ambiguous, so you kind of have to read between the lines on some stuff and there's some subtext too as well. But one big thing that was super fascinating that we get into is he entered this baking competition, which is like this world cup of baking. And he's super modest about it through the whole thing. And you'll hear it in there in the kind of the middle part of the episode. And he was like a finalist in New York. Uh, you know, all these people from all these different countries are competing and he wound up being on, you know, the short list of the finals. He was unable to compete, but he talks about his experience, but he's a super modest guy, super smart guy. Um, and he's just built this business from the ground up. And it's just a great story and a fascinating story and it's delicious bread too as well. So you can find them, you know, go to their website. It tells you kind of what areas that you can find their bread in terms of, you know, retail stores, grocery stores or something like that. You type in your zip code, but you could also follow them on Instagram at 16 underscore bricks. Uh, It's 16 spelled out and bricks, B-R-I-C-K-S. You can also follow El Camino Baking Co. It's at L underscore Camino Baking Co. That's where you can get a bunch of their pastries and stuff like that. Um, and then also you can follow him. It's at Bread and Bad Decision, uh, all spelled out. That's uh, Ryan's personal account too as well. Follow us on Instagram too, at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social medias. You can find us there, either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob 1. But Instagram is the main one that we use. 
Check out our website, spoonmob.com. We got different profiles. Uh, keep updates for everybody that's been on the podcast too as well. Links to all the episodes, food photos, all that stuff's up there. Contact portal where you can write in questions, comments, feedback, or you can email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com too as well. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, whatever platform we're on there. Um, you can also... Check out the podcast through YouTube if you prefer. They just upload a week later. Uh, the episodes do, but they'll hit the podcast feeds first. And make sure to leave us a review if you get a chance on whatever platform that you're using. Um, you know, if you enjoy the episodes, you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review. Um, that'll help us out too as well because people usually just leave uh, reviews about stuff that they hate. Nobody ever leaves positive ones. So we'll try and get some more positive ones uh, associated with the podcast and continue to help spread the word and. Tell other people about it. If you wind up going to a restaurant that we featured or uh, a wine bar that we featured, make sure to you know mention that you heard about them on Spoon Mob and, and the podcast. And also feel free to tag us in any photos or anything that you post to as well, because we love to see people you know check out different concepts and different restaurants that we've had on uh, that maybe they didn't know about, you know, um, or maybe they were aware of but had never tried or anything like that. So it's always cool to see, but. Uh, without any further delays, here is my conversation with Ryan Morgan, the owner and baker of 16 Bricks and El Camino Baking Co. in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks again for agreeing to come on. Holidays are always a mess for everybody scheduling-wise, so I'm glad we were able to finally get this scheduled. I wanted to have you on because your business, 16 Bricks, comes up a lot in the Cincinnati area. Just uh, We've had a handful of people on and always seems to come up. And then we've only, I think, ever had one other person that's focused mainly on wholesale in uh, baking here in Columbus, Mattia Breads. Matt Swint uh, mainly does wholesale for different restaurants. So it's always a fascinating thing to kind of get into because everybody, when they think bakery, they think little shop on the corner, making bread, you know, selling it on the weekends, you know, people stop in, you know, wandering by the storefront, all that stuff. But there's another component to that industry. So I want to get into 16 bricks and everything you got going on now and kind of how that all developed. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody kind of in their careers. How did you first get into baking? Because you spent a long time working as an engineer with your hands and everything and your mind too. But how did you wind up getting involved with food? Was that something that anybody in your family kind of started with when you were a kid and you kind of saw that and just went in the back of your head or what's the story there? Absolutely not, man. I never really cared much about food other than I always liked to go out to eat. When I was a kid, we were super poor. You know, my dad was a maintenance man in a factory. There was four kids. We lived in a two bedroom. I mean, we grew most of the food out back and my mom had a big garden and you know, so for your birthday, you got to go out to eat, you know, and, and so the ex that was like the experience for going out to dinner was always an exceptionally rare and an amazing event. Looked like you went maybe 12 times a year or it was not a usual thing at our house. My mom started the week with red sauce. You know, we had a uh, red sauce that we ate all week, you know, and that was how it went down at, at the Morgan Ranch, you know. You know, things happen in life. Everybody's growing. Everyone's moving. You're getting older, smarter. You know, you're learning how to fight this world a little bit differently or better, you know, whatever it is. My father's rinky-dink maintenance man job turned into him owning this company. There was an explosion in Norwood, Ohio. BASF plant blew up. 
somebody left a beaker on while they went to lunch and the whole fucking plant blew up. My dad was contracted to rebuild all the machinery that was in that plant that exploded. Back then, we rebuilt things and we didn't buy new. I imagine most of those things are still in play today. That was when things kind of changed. Financial status kind of started to change. My parents then split up and my mother married this amazing human and they bought a restaurant. And that restaurant, it would do very good today. It was in Oakley. It's like a little coffee shop now, but it used to be a restaurant years ago, probably 24 years ago to be exact. So you used to walk through this little garden and sit down and everything was grown there. And she kind of built a menu, kind of like how we ate as children. And she was buying bread from a guy named Richard at the GTC Bakehouse. Richard was a real bakery. They were a true artisan bread shop years and, you know, so long ago. And he was fermenting flour and making bread. Back then, there wasn't a lot of them, you know, where now with, uh, you know, there's a lot of Instagram bakers, there's a lot of home bakers, there's a lot of production bakers. And now a lot of baking happens, you know, which is to me, one of the most amazing things, people making their own bread at home. I think that's great. In-house baking is, is great also. But So my mom owned this restaurant and she was buying bread from GTC Bakehouse. And, you know, the guy came in one day and said, hey, I'm closing the bakery, so I can't really sell you bread anymore. And, you know, my mom loved this guy. She just thought he was great. My stepdad loved him. And they said, what happened, man? And he's like, you know, I have cancer. And they gave me a you know, six months to live. My mom said, no, let me, how can I help you? And I imagine tongue in cheek. He was like, hey, buy my bakery. And so my mom and my stepfather bought his bakery and they turned and ran it directly into the ground because they ran it like a restaurant because it's not a restaurant. Bakery, production bakery, restaurant, banquet, it's all very different, very different. So she ran it right into the ground, kind. I mean, it was she just wasn't a baker. And so she was taken advantage of pretty greatly. Maybe not a businesswoman either, you know, and and uh, just failed. I think that in her heart, she felt like she was letting Richard down. You know, here she bought this guy's life's work and didn't make it shine like she thought it would shine. And I think she felt really bad about it and hung on to it for a while and never really let it go. Blah, blah, blah. It was really affecting everyone. I hear I had this little brother who had Down syndrome, and which she renamed the company Sweet William's Bakery, who William was my little brother. And my stepdad, who had MS, was just now in final stages. And it just my cousin, my brother, and myself all got together. And we were like, look, we're going to take over this bakery and we'll handle it. But you're not allowed to handle anything. We're just going to handle it was my ultimatum. I didn't want her to have an idea and make me make gluten-free bread or some shit, you know? That was kind of how it all started. You know, I rebranded because Sweet William's Bakery is not what we do there. You know, I had a 16-ton stone oven. You know, I have an old Pavier oven that was an amazing piece of machinery. And that was the one thing that was different. You know, Blue Oven had been open for about a year doing markets in a, in a wood-fired oven. That's why he calls it blue oven, because he has a blue oven. Yeah, man, right on. What are you going to do? Uh, fermented bread. You know, like there's trying to get your name and what you're doing. So we called it 16 Bricks, because it was a 16-ton stone oven. And that was kind of the birth of it all. Hell, I was working for Johnson & Johnson at the time, 
And I was a serviceman and I went to different hospitals and fixed equipment, worked about four days a week, about six hours a day. Life was super good back then. Having that career, this engineering career, automated machinery, biomedical equipment, how did you even get into that field? Was that just because your father was kind of also doing that? You know, he was working on machines too. So it was just kind of almost like the family trade or like, how did you originally get into that? My father was a maintenance man in a factory and I wanted to be him. He was my hero. My father could fix anything he touched. Anyone brought anything to him and he would tinker until it was right. You know, and I admired that. I admired how it changed the mood in the room. I admired how people would respond to handing him something broken and having something fixed back. That instant gratification was such a uh, an appealing thing for me. And I just always wanted to do that. I have this idea about gasoline. I think that old world engine mechanics and combustion engines are one of the most amazing things on the planet. I, I love it. I love historical antique machinery, preferably of the Harley-Davidson variety, pre-1965. If it's made after 1965, I probably don't care much about it. And I think it's dumb. And please don't talk to me about it. I do love that kind of stuff. To make an engine run in a fashion that is an artistic way, you know what I mean? I'm not a very artistic person, but to have an engine running and humming exactly how they had it humming and running in 1924 or 1947 or 1952 versus the fermentation process, the mixing process, the shaping process, the proofing process, the milling of flowers, the to me, it's all very similar. It's almost like uh, food mechanics. You know, because there is no other way about it. You know, it is a very scientific thing. But with that science and with that math comes so much experience and so much understanding of what you're doing. When you become great at baking, not saying I'm great at baking, I'm, you know, I'm all right. It's very much a similar process. If you dial in the valves, you know, on an antique machine. And when you're in third gear and you're running down the road and you feel all that power and you understand and, and realistically you should shift into fourth gear, which is the highest gear you have. There isn't a fifth, you know, and some of the bikes I have there, third is the highest, you know, and then I'm talking about second. But when you have plenty of power left in the gas and you're cruising down the road and it is you and your machine, there is a passion and a bond that is built with yourself in something your hands did and your mind did, and your nose, and your ears, because you can't just go into this machine that has no data written about it. There's nothing written. You just hear it running, and you dial it in by, very artistically. You, the way a feeler gauge drags on a valve is very artistic. You know, do you spin it this way while you're adjusting in this direction? Like, finding all that and fine-tuning something like that versus making a piece of sourdough bread where did I have it mixing a little bit too long to where it's tight? And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little crazy here. No, you're talking about the parallels between the two. It all makes complete sense. I would say the only difference is with an engine, you can get it quote unquote perfect, right? Bread, you could think it's perfect. 
but most likely you're also your biggest critic and you're going to find some little thing that like it's never going to be perfect. So I think that's probably like the difference between the two is where if you're a baker or even, you know, chefs and stuff like that, too, you're probably happy with the final product, but you're never like satisfied with the final product, if that makes sense. You're always analyzing probably to find what's that 0.01% that I could have made it better. I don't know, man. I feel like there's people that look at their bread and, and look at their food and and jack themselves off to it. Oh, man, this is number one right here. I make the best bread in whatever state, city, town, world I'm in. And then there's other guys that are like, yeah, next time I'm going to put just a touch more water in it. Or, you know, if I wouldn't have folded it this last time, I think that, and you're always critiquing. I believe that if you use enough commodity white flour, you can make something that's pretty damn close to the exact same thing every single time. What is your idea of perfect? You know, when you introduce like a whole wheat, now you're talking about fine-tuning a carburetor that nobody knows the name of or really how it works, which is never going to be perfect. And you take a run out on that machine. You're racing against yourself, whether you're on the street in the sand or on the ice. I think that if you go down the road and as you throttle it, clutch it, double clutch it, shift it, how that goes for you and how that machine hits into that next gear is something that's going to plague you and you're going to adjust and adjust and adjust. And as you make a loaf of bread, I feel like it's going to be the, for me, when in my world, every single time I do it, I'm wanting to adjust. I have notebooks and, and ideas and things written and conversation. One of my best friends, Mike, we talk on the phone when I'm baking. He, ba he bakes for his market the same day I bake for my El Camino. And we have this conversation about I don't know, man, the spelt I'm using now, I think my millstones were a little too close and it's taking water in and it needs more water. Or it's laying flat. It's so similar. And I think mixed with mathematics and artistry is what you're looking at. I think it's always adjustable. I think it's a moving fucking target. And the people that do whatever their craft is really well, you have to balance striving for perfection, which doesn't exist ultimately. But you also have to figure out a way to let go in the fact that you did this thing, you baked a loaf of bread. It's really good. I think a lot of people are going to like it. Is it perfect? Next time I'll try and get it a little bit better. But you have to be okay with going, it's not perfect. And my customers understand there's no such thing as perfect bread. But we can get it to where it's 99% of the way there. And we're just playing with like that last 1% each and every time. I mean, I can see that in a lot of ways. And it depends on what customer and it depends on who at 16 bricks in wholesale customers like the same thing again and again and again, which is a beautiful thing. You know what I mean? To create a perfect loaf of bread there. I think that's very, very achievable. And when you bake something and you say, this is what people are going to like, this is what Cincinnati, Ohio is going to be in love with. And I believe it because I'm in love with it. I can speak to it because I love it and I believe in it. And I'm not telling you a story. I'm telling you the truth. So I can sell it to anybody because I believe it. I'm there. Now, if you add some other variables, now all of a sudden, is it perfect? And who are you baking for? Are you baking for yourself? Is it just some insane idea that you have? And an adjustment you're making that is undocumented 
at El Camino versus what I do every day of the week at 16 Bricks is, is a world of difference. Yet it's still the same. What I do with my stone mill for the bread that I make at El Camino versus what I do with my stone mill for the bread I make at 16 Bricks is very different. You know, at 16 Bricks with wholesale and baking for chefs and baking for long line and baking for to get better quality food in the masses' hands is what 16 Bricks does. At El Camino, it's more of a bread lab. It's more of a Ryan's Bake Shop. Now, Megan Ketover makes all the pastries for 16 Bricks there, and that's the existence of El Camino Baking Company. The fun for me and what keeps the gun out of my mouth is what I get to do there and, and the bleeding of the passion and the love that I have for baking is what I do at El Camino Baking. You know, I spent so many years competing that during competition baking, I wasn't competing to be the best in the world. I was competing to do the best that I could do and have other people that are bread authorities say, this is really good bread, man. You're doing great. Rather than have my mom try it. You know what I mean? Like my mom's going to be like, man, that's great. Maybe more salt. Why is it not white? You know, <laughs> these are things my mom says, you know, but like my friends are all going to blow it up. Like, yeah, man, that's fucking great. That's fucking great. Well, I didn't have another piece because I'm not real hungry. And you're like, ah, okay. When you guys take over the bakery from your mom, you know, like you said, you rebrand it and everything like that. You take it over. Were you initially thinking you were going to have to take it over or was it just, yeah, I'll fix the machines or, or whatever. I can be kind of your on-call maintenance person, but you really had no intention of being super involved. My brother was going to be the baker. You know, we were going to send him out to San Francisco Baking Institute and, and have him go through, you know, a 10-day bread course out there and come on back and apply what he learned. And that was not going to happen. He had a small child and his wife was pregnant. What we wanted to do was just relieve my mother of the stress. We never once thought that we were going to own a bakery for 12 years now, May of 2011. No, we thought it was an employee problem and we thought we just needed to shut it down. When we all got together and signed on the line, it was just to live out the lease. We were just living out the lease at this building, and then we were going to figure out what in the hell we were going to do at the end of that. That was how 16 Bricks started, just that, living out a lease for my mother so she didn't have to just throw money right in the garbage and have these people do this and that and all these stories that I heard about it. When's the moment where you first get your hands and mix in the dough, like that first loaf of bread that you baked, good, bad? Like what was your feelings, you know, when it comes out of the oven and you're like, did it seem like, okay, there's something here. Like, I know it's not great, but like, it's not terrible. Like it's edible. No, it wasn't even then. I mean, we had a consultant come in, Jeff Yankelo. Uh, he came down, like I, I like Google searched artisan bakery consultant and called the first fucking number turned out i like struck gold it was like the guy who walked up to a slot machine and won all the money i talked to jeff and he came down and taught us kind of how to run the front of house how to run the back of house and really taught everybody everything taught me about fermentation you know he was like these are the things that you're looking for this is what to do and then he left and my brother learned a lot of stuff and was running it and doing okay my brother's a degreed engineer. He's a chemical engineer. He works for a big company now. 
And he came to me and said, man, I can't do this. I make no money. I have a child and a child on the way. This is a lot. And I can't keep working through the night. And so he quit. And I was kind of holding the eight ball there, man. You know, I had just signed all the lines and I just did this. And I called Jeff and he sent me to uh, blah, blah, blah. I ended up working for La Farm Bakery for a while for Lionel Vatanay. And then I went there for a while, and then Lionel came up here. We kind of set up the bakery a little bit differently. And when I was working with Lionel, what happened was, you know, I created something, you know, and something that was very artistic and something that was, and I don't know about you, man, but when I was a kid, I tried to draw and I couldn't. I tried to do, do like some sculpture stuff. I couldn't. I tried to do leather work and I couldn't. I tried to carve stuff and I couldn't. <laughs> Just like the least artistic human you'll ever meet. You know what I mean? And, and I believe that all my life. When we took some simple ingredients and created something, and I do remember, and I have a photograph of, the first breads that came out of the oven at 16 Bricks under my watch. Of course, I had a helping hand with me. But as I was training, these were breads that I mixed, shaped, and baked and scored. Like these were the ones. And when I took that bread out, there was something that happened. It all of a sudden became exciting. It all of a sudden became, wow, man, you fucking did something. Look at you, you know? And then I was like, I want to do that again, you know? And that was after a long day. It takes a long time to make good bread. And I mean, I think that was also when the beast was created, you know, was at that time. Because, like I said, I never did anything artistic except for make that loaf of bread. And I've been trying to outdo that ever since that day. When you're running 16 bricks, now you're baking bread and everything. Was there a moment where you knew it could survive on its own? No, there wasn't. There was never a time. I remember I had bread proofing in. There's this whole side of baking that no one talks about. It's the ordering process. It's the collecting money process. It's the planning for tomorrow's bake process. Like this is an absolute shit show. And I've had a really hard time doing that and all the baking, right? So I hire this lady, Nicole. Nicole is like a godsend to me. Without her, I don't know where we'd be. Like realistically, I don't know how people do it without a super close friend who's an accountant. Nicole coming in and streamlining what we were doing in the office was huge. But that day when there was three racks of bread proofing in her little ass office and all her desk was covered in flour and she was yelling at me and the table is right outside the door and we're shaping. And I said, you have to help me do some of this stuff. I was looking around and we had bread proofing on top of sheet pans. There was stuff in the freezer. We had bread proofing with ice cubes in it to slow it down, you know, like it was gnarly and you couldn't even move in this place. And I was like, what are we going to do? And I thought at that time, I do have a company here and I do have something that the people that people are interested in. I just didn't know what to do with all of it. I, I was really lost and I was really confused and I didn't know what direction to go in. As I thought that what we had was good, we also had the stone in the oven crack. We had the burner underneath it bust out the side of it to where I lost half of the heat. We were able to get through it. That was like a $3,500 fix. My mixer just put in notice because we were growing too quickly. 
he wanted more money, but yet we were taking on too many accounts. So he was like, this is going in a direction I don't like, and I'm not paid enough. To pay you more, we got to do more. We got to take in money. You know what I mean? Like I didn't understand his idea there, and I still don't. Ten years later, I still have no idea what that guy was fucking talking about. But he's no longer with the company, you know. And it was his decision, not mine. That happened, and then the landlord was like, "We're going to raise your rent." And I was like, "What the fuck?" The guy who I had been working with this whole time just had a, a child, and he was like, "I can't afford to work here either." And I didn't know what I was going to do. That happened kind of like within a week of itself. I haven't thought about this time since. I really and truly have not thought about the turmoil that I was in mentally because with every smile that I've been handed, I've had a punch in the face almost directly afterwards. So when that all happens, what kind of leads to you focusing on the wholesale aspect of the business? At that point, I'm imagining you guys are kind of doing some retail stuff and everything. You're growing, you're getting more accounts, no space. People are like, hey, it's not enough money. I can't work here, or, you know, whatever. So what kind of leads to you just going full on down the wholesale lane? I was always wholesale. We used to do breads for a lot of retail outlets, such as Pipkin's Market. Pipkin's Market and Country Farm Fresh were the first. There was a little spot called Melt also picnic and pantry she was also a customer then these three outlets were my first outlets and then clip the natural foods not a lot of volume there not a lot of bread sales there but people that enjoyed quality i have way more accounts now you know i'm not poo-pooing them these were just the originals these are the people that are part of that part of the story you know with these customers i could not afford to put labels on their bread but i could take six baguettes or eight baguettes put it in an old flower bag and roll up the top. And I could deliver that to Todd Kelly at the Hilton. That was no big deal. And I could take it to, what was the other one? Brew River Gastro Pub. He bought tons of baguettes from me and burger buns. And I could bring those to them. And I had no label. I had no bag. I had no clip. And it was just that way. So I couldn't really afford to do a lot of slicing, bagging, labeling, plastic. You know what I mean? for date stickers and the whole thing that grocery outlets need you to do. I abandoned it quickly because I couldn't afford to work for those people. So how do you keep growing then? You got all these people working, coming and going, whatnot. You know you have to grow to keep the lights on and everything like that. Are you just out there also doing all the sales stuff and like just door to door? Like How does that all go? Todd Kelly was one of my first customers, but one of the things about Todd was he was one of my most influential customers. He bought bread and he was like, look, I'm going to put this bread in orchids. Okay. This will be orchids bread. It'll be what you and Megan do for orchids. And I was like, awesome. He was like, I'll also put you in room service. But if you want in my entire company, which I'll give you, I need you to make more sales because you don't have enough customers. And I'm going to go putting your name on things and talking about you. And what's going to happen is you're going to go out of business because you don't have enough work. And I was like, well, shitballs, you know? And so Todd said, you go and make three sales calls a week and tell me who you made calls to. And I'll continue to grow you in the Hilton. And if you ask Todd, he probably doesn't even remember saying that to me. You know what I mean? He's just kind of that way. He's one of those people that they want to grow you as a human no matter what how do you touch a life kind of he's one of those kind of guys 
that is what made us grow. And that's what made us go into so many different markets, you know, and, and pack Nicole's office with bread to get to that point. So eventually you guys wind up in a production facility, right? Like a bigger space? Well, one of the things that happened when Jesse was quitting because of his child coming and Ryan was leaving mixing because it was, you know, not what he was thinking and the oven broke and fucking Steve Schmidlin was raising my rent. This guy came in, wanted to buy the bakery. And I was like, no. And then he was like, well, how about 80%? And I was like, no, 70%. And I was like, no, he did that like mafia move where he wrote down a number and slid it across the table at me and I picked up this number. Hindsight, I should have taken that fucking money. Should have taken that money. And uh, that was good money. I could sell it today for what I passed up then. Mr. Klosterman was bound and determined to buy into 16 bricks. So much that we went to lunch one day and then he took me to the facility we're in right now and was like, if you sign on and sell me part of your company, I will put you in this building and we will build this building out to your specifications. And I said, can you uh, give my staff insurance? My staff does not have insurance. They need health insurance. They need coverage and they need two more dollars on the hour. And he was like, yes, I will do that. I will not only do that, but I will allow your staff to have access to my company's union insurance. So at the time when we first married, my staff was paying $12 a week for insurance. I mean, it was, it was an amazing thing. You know, it went working for 16 bricks, went from like a pretty shitty job to a career in insurance and a week off work and, you know, like vacations and holidays and all these elaborate things that I never thought I'd be able to offer anybody. And that year, I think we quadrupled our sales from the day that I left the Fair Lane building and went into this production bakery that I've built. You know, Mr. Klosterman walked in when I didn't know what to fucking do. I just felt like, you know, to answer the question about when did you feel like you had arrived in the baking industry? Well, I didn't even call myself a baker until I was approved to compete for the Coupe de Monde. You know, I didn't even wear whites. You know, when I worked for King Arthur Flower and uh, Jeffrey Hamelman made sure that you wore, you know, chef whites. That was the only time was I was ever in a, in a chef coat up until gaining approval with the coop. You know, that was when Mr. Klosterman walked in and, and we shook hands finally after months and months and months. That was when production happened. That was when everything kind of changed. You mentioned the baking competitions and essentially seeking out feedback from strangers, really, like people that would give you honest feedback that aren't friends and family who are going to say, yes, this is good or whatever. With the baking competitions, what all goes into that? Is it like, you know, everybody kind of signs up and it's like, all right, for the first round, like everybody's got to make a sourdough? Oh, no, man. If you, if you think about uh, the World Cup for soccer. It's the exact same thing. You're baking and you're into it and you're or like rodeo. Rodeo is, is a cowboy's competition. It's just their job. That's their fucking job. Linemen, linemen have competitions. The drag strip is a mechanics competition. You know what I mean? There's all these competition with everything. 
The Coupe de Monde is the pinnacle of competition in bread baking. There's been a lot of changes lately, and Tiptree is doing something now that is a worldwide competition. But before that, it was only the Coupe de Monde Boulangerie that's held at Europon in France, and that's every four years. What goes on is you compete like at this level, then another level, and then a bigger level. And you understand what you're doing by way of competition. You have a coach, you have tryouts, you know, when you get approved to actually try out, you have a couple more competitions before you get to that, you know what I mean? And then through there, all your practices leading up to the main event are all competitions and, and trials. But it's more serious than like you just applying and signing up for some feedback. Yeah, it's not talked about, but you know, one of the things that makes cooking and baking in the United States so great is we don't have any fucking rules. Ain't nobody telling us that you have to, you know, to be an MOF in, in France is, is one thing because you have rules and you've obeyed these rules. In baking in America, you do whatever the fuck you want, man. If I want to mill rye flour that's grown in Kentucky and mix it with spelt flour that's grown in Montana, I'm allowed. And I can do it 100%. There doesn't have to be in France, you cannot have more than 0.2% yeast or you can no longer, in a sourdough bread, where you can no longer call it sourdough bread. You can legally have something, a 0.2 yeast, and do the rest with a sourdough starter, and it is called sourdough bread. You can say that that's naturally fermented. But I mean, it's spiked with some yeast, man. You know, and I, the reason to do it is so there's rules there. Here, you can put some lemon juice in it, you know, or some cultured wheat flour. And you can get a sour flavor and, and just yeast it. And you can call that sourdough bread. So there, there are rules and guidelines. A baguette, cut weight, 350 grams, 19 and a half inches long. It's got five scores. It's got all the scores. The ear is on the right-hand side, opening in this direction. So they give you a few breads to make. So you got six loaves, six different things to make. You got a bread of your health. You have a freestyle bread. You have a naturally fermented bread. You have a traditional baguette and a decorative baguette. And then you have a like a whole wheat loaf. You have to do this. And each one has criteria that it has to hit. And if you hit that and it looks beautiful and it tastes beautiful, voila, you're now in competition mode. Now, can you take that and beat everybody else in the entire world who got to that point? So you had to try out, right? Is it essentially a U.S. team? It is a U.S. team. How many people tried out? Probably 100. Then it gets whittled down. The criteria is not little. You take videos. You take pictures. I don't know exactly how many people. In my mind, it's probably, it's probably 70 to 100 people trying. I could be wrong, man. It, I could have been one of seven. The amount of people that I've talked to and things like that, it seems like it's a larger amount to whittle down into just the group. So you have to create a brand new formula. You have to take that formula and repeat it. And yeah, it's, it's, there's a huge process down, whittling down to the, the final two, because of course you have a backup. So it's a two-person team then? It's one man team, but you have to have a backup in case you fall down and hurt your hand. It's just like the Olympics. You have a coach. You have someone yelling at you. You have sleepless nights. You basically represented the entire country at like a world bread baking competition. That's not like a small thing. 
it's the World Cup of bread, though, dude. It's not like I don't think people even care. And I think the world competition now is called Instagram, you know, and how many followers and who did what. I just don't think people know about it. I didn't know about it. It's bread, man. It's not something that's the highlight of the world. And not only that, but it's bread with rules. It's bread with push. It's actual validation more so than it is notoriety or somebody saying you're rad. My friend Dan the Baker, Dan up in Columbus, he's got a fucking ton of followers. His bread is super good. It's his bread and his idea of bread. And he has worked with me, he's worked with Chad at Tartini's, worked with Mike Zakowski's, worked with a ton of really great bakers. He does him and he pushes him. He has absolutely no interest in going out for the Coupe de Monde. A lot of chefs today have no interest in going for a cooking competition. But once upon a time, it was a way to validate your skill set. Have someone of your skill set say what you did there was great. Not a lot of that in bread. Did you just compete the one time? For the coupe, yes. How far did you get? I was in New York for the final competition. I had fallen ill and I was in the uh, final stages of, of liver failure, actually. And I ended up uh, doing a week in the hospital instead. How many people were in the final round? There's only four. You were one of four finalists in a world competition. Like, it's not a small thing. Cool. I couldn't have done, you know, there's that. There's, I don't know how many people were really going for it, man. Every culture has bread, some form of bread, like every single one. I mean, it's a universal thing. Everybody understands bread. Maybe not the molecular structure of, of bread and what everything goes into it, but everybody can resonate with bread. They've seen bread. They've had bread. That's our problem here in Cincinnati is we got Klosterman bread and butternut bread and the soft white bread and people fucking love soft white bread. What do I sell most of? White bread. What's most interesting to me? Einkorn bread, 100%. Corson bread, 100%. Taking, removing commodity. That's the, what's interesting to me today. Yeah, I feel like all that comes from the affinity with white bread and sandwich bread all comes from like the 50s and 60s when like wonder bread came out and like all that and it's one of the reasons why like Mad Men, you know so much because it's kind of this look in this time capsule and yeah they're doing other stuff because it's a tv show but like you had stay at home moms and, and stuff like that like it exists somewhat now but not the way it did in the 50s and 60s where like that was a you know a homemaker was like a dedicated profession and everything was cooked from scratch and then it's like you see kind of the start of advertising, you know, because you have, you know, color TV comes into play. And then it's like Wonder Bread and it makes your life easier. You can just go to the store and get it. And and now it's like you look at a bread label in the grocery aisle and you're like, which one can I find that is the least amount of ingredients that is the most quote unquote bread? Because it's got sugar, it's got corn syrup, it's got all this other stuff. And you're like, I just want bread. I don't want all this other crap in there. It's super hard to find because just in white flour alone, there's a few ingredients. Folic acid is in flour. I mean, there's just different barleys. There's, that's the TV dinner era. They couldn't get the stay at home to buy cake mix. The way they did it is they incorporated cracking an egg into it, right? This is like a, a story that's talked about. Betty Crocker um, could not sell her pre-made cake mix because it was garbage to them. But when you had to add an egg into it, because they tried to add oil, didn't really work out. 
but when they were cracking an egg into the cake mix, they felt like they were fucking, oh, we crack an egg in this and, and it's homemade. You know what I mean? And that was kind of ways they got people away from food grade and went to a feed grade. That was the time. But at the time, you had to turn in a lot of, you know, World War II, depression and sharing resources was very much a reality. Probably why my mom has some hoarding type issues, you know, is we didn't throw stuff away back then. You can pinpoint that generation. It all goes back into World War One and Two and scarcity of resources and, and all that stuff. And yeah, they don't throw anything out. Everything is saved. You know, one day, 25 years down the road, you might be looking for that one thing somewhere in a box. You're not going to be able to find it, but you're going to be looking for it. It's a question that I have right now is, is that what we're coming back to? You know, are we coming back to that? I see people getting really stoked about making white bread, like as a baker. Right now, I see like fucking white bread, you know what I mean? And like people are getting jazzed on it again. And, and you know, to me, it's just like, is that what we want to be jazzed on? I mean, it could go either way. I mean, some of it might be just the first step for people because so many people started baking during the pandemic because maybe they kind of played with it beforehand, but they never actually had the time to do it. And so many people started baking. Maybe it just starts with white bread and over a couple you know, months, years or whatever, they'll explore other things, but time will only tell them. I think the people baking sourdough bread at home and starting sourdough starters and the uptick in baking during the pandemic to me is one of the coolest things that has happened. They're in you know, a tartine bakery and they, they made this beautiful book, very coffee table esque. You know, the guy's super good looking. The bread's super beautiful and tastes really interesting. You know, it's, it's all not, it's not because some of it sucked. You know what I mean? It's just like became a fad. They made a book for you to be able to take and make bread at home. It spiked bakers at farmers market all over this world. You know, when you make tartine bread, you're making something that is like, at the time, the pinnacle of bread. And that's fucking amazing that they were able to do that. And like, to me, it's not the holy grail. To me, it's white bread, you know, and at the end of the day, it's just white bread, but it's super tasty. I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about it because of of this one weird baker's opinion, you know, and I'm not even trying to push it. I think if you're in San Francisco or Los Angeles and you don't go to Tartine, you're probably an idiot, you know, or you don't care about it. What they did with, and they inspired more bakers and, and bakery people than anyone can even talk about. Now. And then to have that pandemic hit, all these people all of a sudden became like validated and valid for making this beautiful bread. That all of a sudden, then everybody's making it home. And, and now people come to me and ask me questions that are amazing. Oh, what kind of flour is this? And when did you do that? I like to put this much salt in. I have people come to, to the bakery and give me bread. Hey, I made this. What do you think? Man, that's fucking cool. That is like top line, coolest stuff that ever happens when people give me bread and ask me about it. Like some guy who's an accountant or a mechanic or a this or that. I have a lady who makes bread. She makes a lot of it. She runs a gym, you know, like she runs a gym. She's super into other things than baking. Talks to me about bread all the time. You know, it's really, it's really amazing. The whole baking pandemic kind of hand in hand situation. 
How was the pandemic for you guys? Because you're a wholesaler, restaurants closed throughout that. So is everything just on pause for, for you guys during that time period? Devastation. It's kind of like uh, we were talking about when we made it in bread. And then, you know, with everything in bakery has been a fight for me. As soon as I get handed a gift, I get punched in the mouth. You know, it's uh, I had a couple pages in a national magazine, Jeff Gordliner was at my place and put me in, in Esquire magazine. He loved my bread. He loved our conversation. I loved the conversation with him. I still talk to him. He's great. And he wrote a story about me and put it in, in Esquire. And that was released February 14th, about two weeks before we shut down. You know, <laughs> it's, it was a motherfucker for me. I fired 33 people that week. And then from that, you know, what do we do? What's going to happen? How do we stay open? I shook hands with a giant grocery store and made a bunch of bread for them and inevitably just wanted to, we don't do that anymore. We're back to our roots again. We, you know, I made decisions for myself and for the people around me that at the time I thought were the best decisions to be made. And I regret some of them. Going full hog grocery is one of the things that I regret. I guess I could have shut down. What I should have probably done was shut down and just let my people chill out. And I probably should have repositioned and, and just did like a market. I did a bake sale in the parking lot on, on the weekends. So Friday, I baked through the night for Saturday morning. People lined up and came and bought bread. And it was a really great situation for all that uh, as far as that, that market. But the pandemic, pandemic leveled me just to have the world turn back on overnight, which I was terrified. And I shoveled the coal, man. And I just was getting the work done, get the work done, get the work done. And the work that we were doing wasn't of the quality that I wanted it to be. But I just fucking turned my place back on. I just started making payroll again. I was in a really, really gnarly spot, as, as the entire world was. You know, nobody knew what tomorrow held. We knew we were pissed off and bored. That alone was like the, the, the national vibe was pissed off and bored. You know, that's, that's, there's no real up in that, you know, if you're so bored, you're making sourdough bread at home. You're not going to be in a good mood. You know, I made some bad decisions and, and we pushed out some kind of not my favorite quality. And those are some times of 16 bricks life that I'm not that stoked on. Since then, we've made some major adjustments and I'm, I tried to bag at the day before yesterday that we put out and I was honored that that came out of my facility. And I don't say that very often. I'm a, I'm a pretty tough critic of my own stuff. And that fucking bag out was good, man. I went out and I was like, fucking good job. You know what I mean? And it was, and it was really exciting for me. How does it change business mentality wise where you have this wholesale business, it's going great, pandemic basically wipes it all out. Then you get to come back and you're building it back up again. But now you know, oh, we have to be double the size or is it more of just we need to have more dedicated accounts, more dedicated customers where, you know, or consistency or does anything change business wise? And it's just a blip on the radar. And it was like, yeah, we almost went under, but now we're back and just kind of doing the thing. Have you ever been poor? I mean, poor. I mean, going to bed hungry. I mean, like not necessarily understanding what breakfast is going to look like that kind of poor. And then all of a sudden, and not all, even all of a sudden, it can take you 20 years. It could take you maybe, say, 32 years to get to a point where you have some money. 
And by money, I don't mean much. I just mean if something breaks, you can go buy it. The problem with having money and being able to run to the store and buy something is then all of a sudden you have this problem. How can I keep this money? How can I keep these things? So when you go without and you're firing people, every dollar you make is going to the people that work for you. And you're going without. And the people that are in your life that depend on you go without because they're also fighting that same fight to help others. When the restaurants turned back on and everybody started going back out, I did everything in my power to keep working the door and to keep things going. Pivot this way, pivot that way. I was frantic and I wasn't calculated because I was hungry. And I said yes to things that I shouldn't have said yes to. It's kind of like those decisions I was talking about to where once my belly was full, I was able to reevaluate. So I said yes to every job that came our way. And I pushed hard and I pushed my team hard to do everything so they were safe also. And then once we were established again, that's when I was able to make the hard choices of who do we keep as customers? What do we want our identity to be? Are we proud of what we're doing today? Hence why we mill all our wheat and rye in-house. Hence why I moved our commodity flour to a local mill, a local Ohio, you know, in, in Cleveland. Because I want to keep that mentality of being poor and making the best decision for me and the people around me. And by people around me, I mean people that buy our bread. There is no notoriety given to milling flour in-house. It tastes amazing, but most people, it's just bread to them. When they eat it, to have those minerals and fibers and things that are helpful to them as a human, that's something I think is a result from all these things happening that were so negative. In me making mistakes, I think that at this time to go back and fix some of those mistakes is just going to have to be something that's far more community-based. And by community, I mean anywhere, anyone. It's just community of what's local here and how far out we can push it to make it amazing for people. Does that make sense or is that insanity? Once everything got back to like a stabilization point, you were able to kind of really look at things because you weren't panicking about like, is tomorrow our last day kind of thing? Yeah. Do we need to hurry and take this account and rush to do all this work just to have it run us into the wall? You know, <laughs> like it's going to be the last thing we ever do. We better get it while we can, you know. With the pandemic and there being such an interest in bread, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, people bringing you bread and asking you questions and stuff now too, has it made it easier to find qualified employees? Or is it harder because people have an interest, but they don't understand how difficult it can be in more of a production setting versus in their own kitchen? It's a hard one to answer because it's just a different world. People are interested in what we do. And I think that in a small kind of environment, we would be able to have more quality employees. But in a different kind of environment, it's it's hard to keep people. It's hard to convince people that this is a long haul kind of job. I guess what I would like to say is people are still in a very, very negative and freaked out mindset. And they're very concerned with themselves and how to make sure that they're taken care of. Because for a while there, everything they knew was stripped from them. 
And I don't think that happens to people very often. And I don't think people have that that kind of realistic fear handed to them very often. Being someone who was poor born, you know, and, and, and to have money, to think about those two different worlds, it's very hard. So I don't know that people don't want to work right now as much as people, I think, need something incredible to believe in. And that's really difficult, especially for someone like me, who my job as the owner of 16 Bricks in El Camino is to grow the people that are with me, to grow people and try to make a profit, how to inspire them to show them that there is something more and there is something they should believe in. It's very hard right now, you know, and and I can be totally off my rocker because I am older. I mean, I'm 47 years old. I'm, I'm far from 30s. I'm far from middle 20s. My middle 20s and 30s were quite different, quite different. So to try to understand and try to believe, I do. I think people don't really want to do meaningless shit. And I don't fucking blame them a bit. And so to try and teach them like, hey, man, I got some kind of meaningless shit to do. But if you look at it this way, it's really cool. And look what we're doing and look what we're doing for the people around us. And is it meaningless shit if it's helping others? And if we focus on helping others, how is our mind going to be today? How do you get out of being consumed with self when you pour it onto other people? Now I'm consumed with others and helping others. And I'm not even concerned with me. I just understand that I'm going to be in a better mindset because I'm trying to help you. And I don't even know you. That's kind of been my answer to it, if that was even the answer to it. No, I mean, that's a good way to look at it. I guess the only thing that you have to be careful for is putting everyone else above yourself or in front of yourself. Then you can burn yourself out or get to a place that's not healthy, either physically or, or mentally, which I think so many people kind of experienced with the pandemic. And some people were able to get a reset and figure out priorities and but that's a beautiful thing to say back to that. There was one thing that I didn't say in any of that speech, and that was that you should eat a shit sandwich. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no way, at no point, no time, should you accept unacceptable behavior. Not out of me, not out of them, not out of you, not out of anyone. And I think in a lot of times, the big fight that people have is they have been told to accept something that is unacceptable. And fuck that. No, I think in a lot of ways, if I am here for you and to do things at my bakery that will inevitably help you, then the only thing is, is that I have that here for you as an offering. It's what fills my soul and fills a void for in, in, on this planet. And if you choose to be a customer or not to be a customer, what your consumption is, is on me. And that's kind of more along the, the smaller micro level in which, in which I speak. If somebody comes in, they're like, ah, oh, dude, this isn't. I had somebody call and say, you know, this bread you sent me was shit. They have yet to receive my bread ever again because I'm not here for your abuse. And I'm not here. And my people are not here for your abuse. We're here to make bread. You know what I mean? And, and, and do something rad for the world. I think that that's the kitchen problems that we're having. The kitchen Cooking is not a fucking bad job. It's all work. The whole world's work. You want to go do work, go lay fucking concrete. Go do some concrete work. Go do hardscape, stack stones, do drywall, do roofing. 
No, there is some fucking work out there that is far more gnarly than working in a kitchen or a bakery. Far more abusive. Go be an auto mechanic. Go work a line at a dealership and have someone yell at you about your car. I mean, that's some good yelling. These are all things that we don't think of because we're in this industry and we're talking about this industry. Problem I have is I've been in a couple other industries. And so I see, I know some of the pains of some of the other industries. But as a general rule, when people go out to eat, they really want jacked off in a way that I'm just not interested in. And I think most of the world is that way. And I think not reporting for duty is not okay. I don't think that's the way to teach people, to teach the world how to treat people, to call them toxic, to talk about this. I think that if you control your environment and you say, I am only going to accept this kind of stuff, that's okay. That is what you should do. But there's a way to teach someone not to talk to you that way. Hey, man, that's not okay. Don't talk to me that way. Whatever verbiage needs to be said, I think that that's a huge thing. I'm not here for your abuse, bro, or to be able to stick up for one another. I worked at a place when I was a kid, and I remember seeing the boss patted this lady on the ass. She did not like that. And I've always regretted not saying, hey, man, I don't think she liked that. I think about that sometimes. I had a fucking voice then. I was a different man than I am today. Probably could have punched him in the nose with minimal pain attached to it. Now they would beat me up and I would be hurt and I'd lose a few days of work. You know, I'll still say that now I'm definitely the first in line to say it. But it's those are things like teaching the world how to treat us. Report, put in a good, solid work where you feel good about you. And if someone's saying that you're not doing it, but yet you're doing it, you need to tell them no. The world costs a lot of money. It sits tough. Everybody's bummed out. We don't hear I love you as much as we need or should. For the business, is it back to pre-pandemic levels? Totally. 16 Bricks has been maxed out. It's been maxed out for a long time. The pastry project called El Camino Baking Company is doing really well. Uh, You know, Megan, they're, they're maxed out on their wholesale. I would like to see a few more days a week out of the place. The bread that I make is not for everybody. It's 100% whole wheat. It's whole grain. It's naturally fermented. It's organic. It's sourced properly. It's not a high output place. So to drive up to College Hill and have some bread and and some pastry and, and some good coffee is what I wish everybody would do. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I only work there one day a week. I only work Friday nights to supply for Saturday morning bread. That's actually, I'm lying to you. We, I do Wednesday bread as well. I just do 30 loaves on, on this day, and I do about 100 loaves on that day. And it's fun, and it's enough to feed my soul, you know, and, and to push my beliefs. But pre-pandemic, I mean, 16 Bricks has stayed maxed out since we turned back on, and we were maxed out before we shut down. By maxed out, I mean, we're really only doing things that we're really good at. And we're maxed out for the amount of employees that I have and the quality that we can put out. Like the restaurant that is like, I'm sorry, I don't have enough employees to see. So you're going to have to wait an additional hour. Where I wonder if maybe they should pull a couple tables. I'm not in that position. I'm not there. I don't know how that goes. Just little things like that. I'm not telling people what to do or what I think. It's just an idea. So El Camino is the pastry arm of it. Is that strictly wholesale too as well, or is there a retail component at all? It has a storefront. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 
They sell pastries every morning. They sell bread on Wednesday morning and Saturday morning. It's only me. I don't have a staff. I am the only bread baker. Katie helps me with a little bit of stuff because she's a night shifter. If I can score a little bit of nighttime sleep, I'm going to. Uh, And she's really great and I can trust her. But, you know, primarily I'm the only bread baker and there's about six people making vinoiserie and different shortbreads and things like that there. Was that born out of just a demand from the other clientele that that was something they were looking for? Is this more of a passion project that you wanted to do? Not at all. We had the pastry side of things and it was in the bread room. I hired a guy who helped me tremendously. He helped me tremendously. Randy Sebastian left Boca. He was going to start his own bakery and he temporarily was with 16 Bricks. And man, he did me a world of good. And I couldn't thank him enough. He was like, Ryan, this does not belong in this room. You have got to get it out of here and get it out of here right fucking now. And normally, when someone says that to me, I'm like, go fuck yourself. I really am. Don't tell me what to do. I really don't appreciate that. But man, that dude was not lying to me. And he was not telling me that to be some kind of bully. He was telling me that because it was right. So we found him a spot to go. We moved it there and set up. He was only going to be with us for just a short time while he built his spot. I knew he was funded. I knew it was going. It was a short-lived thing. His funding turned on and everything. Like It all worked out really well. And it, it was because of him we were able to move that and start that passion project. It was because of him that I got to see that tearing down 16 bricks. It became profitable right when I got it out of that room. That was how El Camino started. I've always done private baking. I've always baked for our events and baked for this and baked for that myself because I'm a bread baker and that's what I want to do. But that was how that all happened. I just wanted to make really interesting products. Having that pastry shop really does it. And now we're doing pizzas on uh, Tuesdays and Saturdays with the pizza dough that I think is really great. We're selling coffee. I fucking love coffee. I really love what we do at El Camino. I really do. You mentioned both are kind of maxed out right now. Would you expand either of the operations further or are you comfortable with the level that you guys are operating at? Me and comfortable never seems to go hand in hand. You know, people say that all the time. Like, so are you going to retire? Like, don't worry, man. When you retire, everything will be mellow. No, well, I'm a fucking lunatic. I'm always on. So there is um, another building and we are kind of building some stuff and, and looking at some expansion for sure. I don't know, more on February 3rd when I have the meeting. But right now I'm building it all out by way of paperwork. We're building a new place and seeing how that'll go. Every baker kind of has their staple, their go-to. What is the one thing that kind of got you hooked? And what's the one thing that you're looking in the future that you want to master, so to speak? I have been really, really, really interested in milling for the last few years. I guess I'm always trying to master different grains and how to go with that. We talked about home baking and we talked about all these other things. At El Camino, we mill everything in-house. We ferment everything in-house. We bake, we make shape, bake everything in-house. And with every crop, there's variables. There's variables on what's in it, what enzymes come in that flour that you get, and how are they going to ferment. Keeping everything there and not doing anything commodity is such a moving target and a hard variable that 
to say to master any of it is is just that i have a new mixer now i have a diving arm mixer that mixes things in exceptionally slow and exceptionally more flavorful and that is something that is so mastering that is the current thing that i'm trying to master i make a pretty damn good baguette you know what i mean like i've taken a lot of my baking skills to task I've taken them to France. I've taken them to, I've taken them places for someone to say you did good or you didn't do good. I've, I've put myself in the position to hear the hard words. What are we trying to take? The thing that I'm mastering now is how fine can I mill this flour? How much flavor can I get out of these stones? That's what I'm mastering at the moment. Does that benefit go into this diving arm mixer? How can I get more volume out of that? How can I, you know, inevitably I'm making the things the way that they were made years and years and years ago, you know, before there were roller mills and flows and sifters and all these amazing things that we do now. Three of my doughs every week are mixed by hand completely because if you put them in a mechanical device, that'll just rip them up. So you, you know, never went to baking school or any culinary school, but competed at high level competitions and have built this business from essentially nothing, a failing business to this giant successful operation. So if someone on your staff asked you, hey, I'm interested in starting my own business one day or baking bread or pastry or whatever, do you think I should go to a culinary school or a baking school? San Francisco Institute is a famous one that you mentioned earlier too. What would you tell them? Yes, definitely go and do that. Definitely go to school. Definitely go to school and, and learn some things. That'll take away probably your first two years of hell. You know, my first two years were trying to figure out how to fucking make bread. You know, I was getting notoriety and love in the neighborhood where, man, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, I didn't know at all. I was trying like hell. But if you understand baking a bread, you understand that just like you said with every baker, pizza maker, person that comes in you know what are they trying to do well as soon as you do something and then you pick something and you get there then somebody's going to be like can i have a hundred of those and you're like man i only made the one you know and you're like <laughs> you're like all right give me a hundred now your focus is how to make a hundred of that so if you can get as much knowledge and then go and stage or work somewhere under someone to develop your skill set or if you work for me and you already have a skill set and you're already able to make bread. And they say, hey, Ryan, I want to I want to start my own thing. I say, cool, what are you going to do differently than everybody else in town? What's going to be different? What's going to be more rad about what you're doing and more authentic than anyone else? That's Those are the questions I would have, I guess, or how I would push them. Baking school's rad, man. A week of fucking listening to somebody teach you. I just took a class from Tomas and, and from France, and he's like maybe one of the most inspirational people that I've ever taken a class from. And he's a scientist more so than a baker. It was a bread theory class. It was a theory on fermentation. We learned how to make panettone, you know, <laughs> but it was, you know, but the whole, but four of those days were based on, on fermentation. What's the one baked good whether it's bread or something from elk that you're most proud of like what's the one staple of 16 bricks like if somebody could only try one thing in cincinnati they're just passing through and they can get one thing from you guys what's that thing that they should get 
at 16 bricks, I'm really proud of our baguette. I'm really proud of the baguette at 16 bricks. At El Camino, there's a sourdough bread that I make called High Plains Drifter. It is my competition pan compan, which is whole wheat sourdough. Uh, a lot of people call it country bread. I'm pretty fucking proud of that bread. That I, I would want them to try that. I think 16's baguette, second to none. As you mentioned, you've been running the bakery for 12, 13 years now. Since you got involved, you know, how has the food scene in Cincinnati changed and evolved? And what do you think, you know, where it's headed and anything that you hope that you see change in the near future with it? Man, it's such a different world right now. It's such a different environment. I can't even compare to pre-pandemic to current day. The whole workforce has changed. The whole restaurant vibe has changed. My friend Dave Jackman is doing some really interesting stuff with his wild weed pasta. I'm really excited about him and what he's doing. Change? Fuck, man. Because so much of it is like, in a lot of ways, being an older guy, I want to see, I want to eat the level of food that I used to eat. And how can we make it sustainable for these restaurants? How can we make people excited and passionate about food and less of a vibe how can we make sure that people can come to work and not face the fights that they they currently are fighting underpay abusive owners chefs what do i want to see in the food world passion i'd like to see some passion again how to do it if somebody wants to tell me i'll help i'll do everything i can to help bring it back you know, that's what I like so much about Dave Jackman is when I'm feeling low, I can call him and he'll be like, that's just because that bread was was terrible, dude. He'll be feeling low and I'll be like, I didn't really care for that. He'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How about this? And, it, you know, and, and him and I have been pushing each other and he's just my current buddy, you know, not saying he's just passing through or whatever. He's just someone who is exceptionally passionate about what they're doing. And I'm exceptionally passionate about what I'm doing. And we talk all the time. That's why I use him as an example. And, and he is, uh, I hope to see more of his kind of passion and others. That's something that, that I really like. So what's next for you professionally? I know we kind of covered it, but you got this potentially new space sometime February, find out kind of some additional details and you got El Camino, 16 Bricks is running, everything's back up to pre-pandemic levels. So is there anything else that you're kind of tinkering around with or is, is it kind of those things for now? Um, there is a pizza spot that is in the works right now. Wood-fired pizza spot. Chris Hacker has been doing a lot of pop-ups with a dough of mine, and we've kind of collaborated on what's being pushed out right now. And he's going to be having a pop-up Saturday at El Camino. And that is something that is going, and hopefully that'll be in the works really soon to have kind of a location for that. That spot should be opening soon as well. And that'll be in Northside uh, across the street from Littlefield at the old Arcade Legacy. That should be a pizza joint really soon. That's new. That's exciting. That's passion. You know, Chris is is getting after it. And he's, he's somebody, you know, to be watching for. We got a few questions left for you as we start to wrap up. So this question was left behind from our previous guest on the podcast, Master Sommelier Justin Moore of uh, Moore Wines and Rose's Restaurant Group out in D.C. He left behind for you. What trend are you currently seeing in your industry that needs to go away? White bread. Glorifying white bread. Glorifying commodity mediocre shit. That is what I see. 
What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest on the podcast? Can be anything. How are you improving the passion in your line? If he's a butcher, how's he making other people stoked to be a butcher? This next question is one from our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, what's the ideal time to eat bread? Is it right after it comes out of the oven? Is it a day later, two days later? That's a beautiful question. Competition breads all have a lot of white flour in it because it's consumed four hours after it's out of the oven, which is room temperature. All bread should be consumed at room temperature. Rye bread. It takes about 24 hours to cool 100% rye bread. Miche is actually best, which is a long fermented large loaf, which lasts about five to seven days. That bread's best after three days. You know what I mean? It kind of continues to ferment and the grains kind of continue to marry. I would say room temperature. The bread that we're going to get around here, room temp, a couple hours after it's out of the oven. But I eat a lot of warm baguettes, man. And I eat a lot of toast. So this last set of questions we asked to everybody who comes on the podcast. So compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far? Mike Sikowski. He is one of my best friends. He is somebody that I admire in baking. I follow along closely right behind him. I attribute a lot of the things that I do to him. He's a competition baker. He was my coach in competition. He pushed me when no one else did. He's been there for me through thick and thin. He's a super good friend and a super good baker. And when I change something, I call him. He is the most influential person I've had at this time. There was a guy named Craig Ponsford that got me away from white flour. There was uh, Jeff Yanklo who showed me what competition was and how to shape a baguette. Currently, it's Mike Skowski. What's one kitchen item, one item in your facility that's not a knife that you can't live without? I like a plastic-handled metal bench scraper. That is what I cannot live without. And the world stops until I find it because sometimes people use it. They get in my little area and grab my really cheap, ugly. You don't know what I'm talking about, but you've used one a bunch of times. You know, they're like square. They got a big, ugly industrial white handle. You're like, oh yeah, pan scraper. It's actually for cutting dough. (laughs) And that is the one thing for me. Restaurant or bakery that you'd recommend that isn't your own? Scenario, usually a person gets stuck at the airport, flight's canceled. They reach out to you, you know, hey, we're stuck here. Where should we go eat? You kind of point them in this direction. Man, I really like ramen at, at Kiki. I try to send people to, to go to Kiki and have some ramen. is one of the many places I, I give advice on. And that's where I would go right now if he was open. <laughs> but he doesn't open for a few more hours. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So a place you haven't been to, you still want to visit. And then also a place you have never eaten at, but you still want to go to one day. You know, I was invited two separate times to go to Noma. And I, never, and I didn't go. And I, I'm kind of bummed on that right now. I want to go to the Netherlands really bad. I, I want to see that super bad. I, I think about it a lot. Kind of Northern Lightsy is kind of where I'm at. Food right now, like a, a restaurant, a bucket list restaurant to go to. There's just so many. My buddy, Mike Sikowski, he does little pizza dinners and I crave his pizza very often. But I've had it. I mean, I think your answer, you know, kind of is Noma in a way. I mean, obviously, you know, they're closing and everything with the announcement. They're still open for two more years. It's true. And the invite is still there. And it is from someone who's valid. Yeah, probably Noma, especially that it's going away. Craziest thing you've seen happen, you know, working in the bakery. 
we have these great big mixers. Our batch sizes is, are 600 pounds, right? This machine pulls these hoppers over and it, you know, dumps the dough onto a table for us to divide out into 20 pound pieces. Then is in the bus tubs for fermentation. I saw this guy, Evan, he's still with me today. I still love him to death. He's, I, I were a different bakery without him. Dough dump comes up, a dough comes out and hits the table just perfectly. And then for some reason, it just like flopped out of the mixing bowl onto the table. And then it fell and it hit him and went right on the floor. And all of a sudden he was sitting on the ground with 600 pounds of baguette dough sitting on the ground. And that was one of the most amazing things that I ever saw happen at 16 Bricks. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything fast food, candy, chips, whatever that you know is unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? I fucking love Taco Bell, man. I love Taco Bell and Diet Coke. So Taco Bell is a frequent answer we get for this question. So the follow-up to that is always, what's your go-to Taco Bell order? Uh, you know, it's only here in Cincinnati where we can get a chili cheese burrito. Everywhere else is a crunchy taco. I would eat those damn crunchy tacos with hot sauce, probably six of them. And I'm like, fat boy over here. <laughs> what is the one cookbook everyone should own, whether they're a professional chef, professional baker, at-home cook? What's that one cookbook? that you think everybody should have? I am not a cook by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a terrible cook. I have never been good at it. So I just have to go with a bakery book. And that would be Jeffrey Hamelman's book called Bread. If you ever want to make bread and you don't necessarily know how, it can teach you from baker's math to long fermentation processes to making porridges and cooking seeds. I would say that is the number one book to have if you're going to be a bread baker. That's step one. Favorite kind of thing you've ever baked, cooked, created, you know, looking back over the course of 16 Bricks, you can almost point to this as the aha moment for you. And knowing that you could take 16 Bricks and make it a full-fledged operation and you could be and call yourself a professional baker. I never did that until I was accepted to compete for the Coupe de Monde. Before that, I never thought I was a baker. I just thought I made a lot of bread. That was the one pinnacle time. As far as product that blew my mind and that I'm super stoked on was einkorn. When I was able to do my own version of 100% einkorn loaf, that to me was pretty fucking great. I feel really good about it. People really liked it. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there an episode moment scene about him that stands out to you? If you weren't, was there anybody else who's on TV in the food industry, an Emerald, uh, Julia Child, whoever, that you always kind of gravitated towards? I always thought that Anthony Bourdain was super interesting and super honest. I think that the way that he worded things and spoke was very appealing. And the way that he his perception of what he was doing, I thought was always great. As far as TV personalities, I, I think that that guy, and that Michael Simonson guy in Cleveland, I always thought that he was really interested in utilizing, you know, whole hog stuff and, and things like that. I always thought that was very, very interesting thing for me. But again, I'm, I'm pretty novice to that stuff. When I'm not at ba doing bakery stuff, I'm kind of more interested in, uh, and gasoline and 
antique Harley Davidsons. <laughs> Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. 16 Bricks is my number one handle, my number one thing, and what I anticipate to be around for a really long time. El Camino Baking Company is a passion project in a pastry shop. My Instagram handle, my private one is Bread and Bad Decisions. For El Camino, you said they're open uh, Wednesday through Saturday, Wednesday through Sunday? Wednesday through Saturday, 7 to 1. Saturday is 8 to 12. Bread is on Saturday. And then 16 Bricks, you can go to the website. 16 Bricks, go to the website. Yeah, it's primary. You know, again, that's really just wholesale. Jungle Gyms is a huge customer. Madison's ETC. You know, there's, there's a lot. It's, 16 Bricks is readily available and head over to the website for somewhere near you for sure. And if you can't find it, just send us an email or an Instagram. And if uh, there's a restaurant in the Cincinnati area that doesn't currently carry your bread, but would be interested in exploring partnering opportunities with you, how should they get in touch? Email sales at 16 Bricks. It's great bread. I've had it at various restaurants that you guys have supplied. Pleasantry, uh, which is just recently closed, unfortunately, but Branch, Jeff Ruby's. I mean, there's a whole bunch of places that you guys, we've had some of it that's been on the menu. Delicious bread. Uh, looking forward to checking out the pastry shop. Wasn't super aware of and, uh, you know, we'll be down in Cincinnati uh, sometime next month. So definitely going to make an effort to stop in and, and see what's going on over there because it sounds like a pretty cool uh, situation and have had some of Megan's uh, creations, you know, when she was the pastry chef at... Um, just recently, it was Cora. Yeah, I thought they did really good. I thought they did really good. You know, you're in Columbus. I heard there's there might be a bakery in Westerville. Is probably maybe where that new plant's going to be. I don't know though. Yeah, I mean that's pretty interesting. So yeah, that'd be a, a whole nother market. It could be a whole new thing. You know, Columbus has some good bakeries. Dan the Baker is up there. He makes some really good stuff. You should go see him for sure. I don't know if you know who that is or. We used to live downtown, so he was easier to get to. We recently, over the past six months, uh, moved out kind of into the suburbs, but. When we lived downtown, it was a lot easier to get to because uh, he's, you know, off the beaten path a little bit. He, it's always funny because it's kind of just a random kind of a through street. And then there's like this weird little neighborhood and then he's just back there. <laughs> but yeah, we've had the, the pleasure of having some of his creations, croissants and, and stuff that he does and bread and everything um, too as well. So yeah, that'd, that'd be awesome if that winds up uh, all coming to fruition. But, you know, like I said, we'll be stopping in the Cincinnati location, El Camino there, checking stuff out. And this is an awesome conversation. You know, it's a little bit more, I think, uh, philosophical maybe than uh, we usually get into, but that's cool. It's something different, definitely different perspective on industry and COVID and everything too as well. So, but yeah, it's great bread. So I encourage everybody to try it if they get a chance. And it uh, sounds like there might be more opportunities uh, in the middle of Ohio here sooner than later. I hope so. All right, brother. Appreciate your time today. A big thanks again to Ryan for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to chat about his career, share his story, um, you know, talk about 16 Bricks and El Camino Baking Co., where everything's kind of been going and how it got there and where it's headed. So looking forward to, you know, them potentially opening up a spot here in Columbus and uh, being a little bit closer. And, and that I think will be really awesome. We don't have a bunch of bakeries here in Columbus. I mean, we have you know, Dan the Baker, like he mentioned, um, you have Fox in the Snow and Pistachio Vera, which are places that do 
bread items, but they're like pistachio areas, mostly coffee, desserts, and then, you know, pastries. Uh, in terms of like just bread and loaves of bread, like there's not a whole lot of places um, here in Columbus. So Cincinnati just has this wealth of bakeries and, you know, we've had a few of them on, whether it's, you know, the Baker's Table Bakery, um, North South Baking Co. Like they just have all these places that are doing unique and different things. And it's at a high quality and volume rate too, as well. I mean, they're all successful in what they're doing. So it's really cool to see. And, and that's, you wouldn't think that Cincinnati be this, you know, baking hub, but it kind of is. And it's awesome to just see, you know, they're only 90 minutes away here from uh, Columbus. So it's pretty easy to get to and try a bunch of their stuff um, pretty frequently. So looking forward to trying everybody's stuff um, too, as well. So we were off last week. Um, we were supposed to be doing some stuff, but uh, unfortunately, just uh, that stuff kind of fell through. It was a little bit of a spiraling disaster, so uh, we were going to be doing a bunch of stuff in Cincinnati, but um, that just didn't work out with the Airbnb situation. So uh, we'll just do some one-off stuff, um, we'll, you know, drive down there, um, spend a day down there, and, and stuff like that. So over the course of the next few weeks, you'll see us posting um, stuff uh, that we do down in Cincinnati and, and other stuff along the way. and. Make sure to check out the podcast, back catalog, all that stuff too as well. You can find us in any of the apps. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. And then make sure to follow us on Instagram too as well, at SpoonMob. Make sure to follow 16Bricks at 16 underscore bricks. Also at L underscore Camino Baking Co. And then also you can follow Ryan at Bread and Bad Decision on Instagram too as well. But that is it for this week. Another episode will drop next week on Thursday. Appreciate the continued support, listenership. Make sure to rate and review the podcast if you get some time. Feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback, direct message through Instagram. Email us, spoonmob at yahoo.com if you'd like to as well. Uh, appreciate everybody uh, listening and continue to help spread the word. Uh, make sure to tag us and any restaurants that you visit that you heard about You know, on the podcast that we've featured um, we always like to see that too as well. And um, there's a lot of cool stuff happening too here, not just in Columbus, but a lot of people that have been on the podcast are readying new concepts, new menus and stuff like that too as well. So it's pretty exciting time um, to see everything coming out of kind of the pandemic. And it feels like it's getting a little bit more back closer to what it was before the pandemic. So that is it for this week. We will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.